This podcast is sponsored by Kulabula, creators of websites, animation, and digital art. To get a 10% discount, go to kulabula.com and put in the discount code SPEAKING. to the speaking podcast you can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com or also on bitchute and youtube a speaking podcast i also have the awakening podcast meditation podcast the learn polish podcast and the crypto podcast and all can be found on roycall.com today my guest please welcome robert raymond riopel did i do it justice <laughs> you, you you nailed it roy you nailed it nicely done <laughs> oh i always like to ask you might let the audience know who's Robert. Well, you know, I, I am an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. I'm an international best-selling author, an app designer. But the thing I think most pride in is the fact that I've been blessed to travel around the world several times or last few years, impacting lives as a trainer, life-transforming trainer. Um, and to date, I've personally trained in three to five-day workshops over half a million people around the world so far. And that's who I am. And to sum it up, I'm just me. Well, that's a lot of people to be training, so that's impressive straight off the bat. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, like, how did you get into this? How, like, how did you get into wanting to be kind of public speaker? It was more in the beginning out of necessity, which kind of sounds strange. Um, you know, when I was younger, I was taught work hard, stay loyal to a company. That company will take care of you. And that's what I did. But by the time I was 21, I had worked for three different companies and my mind's going, wait, I'm doing what I was told. Why is it not working? And because of necessity, when I was laid off from the third company, I ended up doing pizza deliveries for a little company that people may have heard of called Domino's Pizza. And from working hard in, with them, I ended up becoming a manager. From a manager, my wife became my assistant. We started working open to close seven days a week because we know how to work hard. And we ended up having the opportunity to become franchisees. And when we did, we didn't have any money to do it. But because we have passion, we found a way to be able to actually buy my franchisees two stores from them and do it with no money of our own. And we became franchisees at the age of 23. And we're like, oh, we've got this made. We're now making pretty good money. But our mindset and our blueprint, as we call it, was set for spending more money than we were earning. And by the time we were franchisees for eight years, we had actually created a debt of over $150,000 and we were going down quickly. And that's when we were actually introduced to personal development. We walked into a three-day weekend that we had actually been given tickets to the preview from. And the only reason we showed up was because each ticket was worth $39. And Roy, thank goodness, we could not waste $39 tickets because from that preview, we went to this three-day weekend where we learned why we were in debt. We took ownership of it, that it was us that caused it. And we learned skills of how to get out of it. And what we did is we actually came out of that three days and we put into practice what we had learned. And here's a difference from most successful people that non successful people actually take action. And we decided to put it into action. And we were able to go from being over $150,000 in debt 
to actually being retired completely financially free nine months later at the age of 32. And my mind went, wow, that worked. If this much information gave us that result, what would more learning do? And we became avid students. And while doing that, I found my passion. My passion was to teach because I realized if I could even help just even one person do what my wife and I had been able to do, go from being deep in debt to being retired, it would make it all worthwhile. And of course, my mentor, the person who had helped us, he had been looking for trainers. He had been looking for years, but he said you had to have a lot of experience in front of a lot of people for a lot of years. And I'd never trained a day in my life, but what did I have? I had that passion that I talked about earlier. And I ended up finding out a, a way and creating a way where I became his first protege, first person ever teach his programs other than himself, and then go on to teach thousands of trainers around the world as I was teaching myself and just getting to live my passion. So that's kind of the short, long version of it, Roy. Very good on, like you must have had a very good uh, kind of positive mindset as well, because going through, because I, I, I had a, I went to say I'm kind of doing very well but my, my bit was a bit, a, few, a little bit extra. It was like, I went to minus 5 million instead of plus 5 million, you know, and was kind of personally liable for it, you know, because I didn't realize as being a director in Poland of all different companies, you're personally liable. Whereas in most countries, uh, you know, a limited liability company means you're grand. But uh, so I kind of, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you learn things and you go through a little journey. And I think you come out a better man because of it. You know, you kind of, you look at things differently. Like, you know, even just when you're buying stuff now, I, I, I don't know if it's the same with you, but it's like, it's not about the money anymore. Without a doubt. See, and, and what I love to have people understand is people get so driven by the money. And I, and I love to teach them that if you do what you love to do and you do because you love it and you learn how to make money with it, then money becomes a beautiful side effect. It's not the reason you're doing it. And one of my precepts with any trainers I train I'd say if, if I start to realize or feel that you're just doing this for the money, I won't teach you anymore because now you're doing it for the wrong reason. You've got to do it because you love to do it and let that money come to you because I, I love the universal principle that says you will be paid in direct proportion to the value you give. So if you're making a lot of money, that means you're giving a lot of value. That's what's the key right there for me. Beautiful. I love it. So oh, what were you like as a child? You know, I mean, you, you kind of made yourself become speaking, but like when you were younger, was it something you were uh, into or hiding in the corner? Yeah, you know, I'm a very, I'm a naturally shy person and I hide my shyness by being outgoing. And when actually when I was a child, we moved around a lot. Uh, my parents, just to keep the family fed, we would move from town to town while they were trying to get different jobs. And on one side, this is kind of, it's interesting. It's on one side, they're saying, Robert, you can do anything you put your mind to. You can accomplish anything you want. But on the other side, I was watching them. I was watching them having to struggle and do whatever they had to do to make ends meet. So I was always having that kind of combat going on in my mind. Well, they say I can do this, but I'm seeing them not being able to do what they truly love. And so that's kind of how my mind played out as a kid because I never spent more than six months to maybe a year in one school. And being naturally shy, I wanted to make friends quickly because I didn't know how long I was going to be in that school. And so I do some pretty, we'll call it interesting things. I won't say weird, 
interesting things <laughs> to make friends. And when I finally we settled down in a city for more than a year, that's when kind of things were like, wow, this is what most people do. This is what normal is. And that wasn't until I hit like grade five that I really got to experience what it was that most children went through. And by then I got good at hiding my shyness by being that outgoing person. Very good, very good. And like you've been in, spoke in lots of uh, countries and states. What have you learned, especially in the different countries? What, what have you kind of learned how you must adjust to connect with the audience? Yeah, well, one, I learned being Canadian, not all my jokes, and I'm not a funny person. I have bad jokes. Not all jokes translate very well <laughs> in a lot of languages. And so a friend of mine taught me, he said, Robert, when you're working with your translators and your interpreters, brief them that if you tell a joke and they don't understand it, because I've, I've had it, and Roy, you may have had this as well. I've told, I've said something, my interpreter just stopped speaking. And you watch the whole crowd just kind of get that look on their face like, you know, and, and you know, and all of a sudden I'm like, hello, are you understanding what I'm saying? Is anybody there? Is this mic working? And so I, I've started telling my translators, I say, if there's a joke of mine you don't understand, which there will be many, just say to the audience, this trainer just told a joke, laugh, please. And so, so the moment, and I get the bigger laughs that way. So I know they've done that. So we've had a lot of fun with it. And so I've learned you know, to, that my jokes don't always translate. I've also learned to be very, very um, patient. And I used to be a very fast speaker. Oh my goodness. The running joke was I, I'd be going along and, I, and I'd say to the audience, how many of you realize I speak really, really fast and all their hands would go up? And I'd say, great, take your left hand, put it to your ear, dial up how quickly you listen and we'll be good. <laughs> but when I started traveling around the world more, I realized I, to really allow my message to land, I had to be willing to slow down myself. I had to be able to take the time. And so I became more patient, more tolerant because I grew up in a very sheltered, kind of lifestyle in the beginning. He never traveled outside of Canada really until I was older or North America until I became a trainer. And as I started training around the world, all of a sudden I realized we're all so similar. We have all the same kind of fears and crap going on in our head. And that just because someone does something a different way than I do, does it make it bad? Does it make them worse than me or better than me? No, we're all pretty much the same. And so I learned a level of tolerance I'd never experienced before and feel so blessed that I have because there's so many beautiful cultures and people around the world. That's why, that's one of the main reasons I love to still travel around the world is because I get to meet such amazing people with different lifestyles, different upbringings, different beliefs. And it's pretty cool because I'm a naturally curious kind of person anyway. Excellent. And when you're going to different events, do you have like a checklist to make sure everything is is okay? Because obviously there's a lot more professionalism in some organizations than other, but you don't want it to kind of reflect on you. Do you have a kind of system in place that helps you look better? Well, yes and no. Um, the main system when I say yes is that I've ha I have amazing partners. And because we've done so many events together, they have the checklist, they have the team. But I definitely, I'm in the day before, I'm working with any assistant I have that's gonna be assisting me on stage. I'm um, connecting with the team because one of the big believers, um, big beliefs I have, and 
And when I train trainers around the world, Royce, I say this, I say, I don't care who you are. I don't care how amazing you are, how charismatic you can be the best in the world at what you do. If you don't have an amazing team behind you working and supporting you, you will never be as effective as you can. So I make sure my team realizes how much I appreciate them. So I want to take the time. One of probably my main goals as a checklist is I show up the day before when setup's being done to connect with the team, to thank them for their service, even before we've begun, because I know they've already been going and to let them know that, you know, I'm, I'm very, I have attention to detail and that things may go wrong, but as we stay on top of it, I don't get upset. I don't get pissed at them. I don't start yelling at them. It's like, I was in your position. I spent two and a half years doing logistics. So I understand every part of the room when I'm on the stage and I can tell I'm usually in advance if something's going to go wrong because, you know, my normal trainings are three to five days long and I'm on stage for up to 12 hours a day. So there's, it's not like everything, it's not like a short talk where it's like, I'm just going to give that scripted, let's go, I've got it so practiced. It's about being able to read the audience, going where they need to go. And so I'm always aware of that. So my checklist is just making sure we have the room, the space set up to allow me to create a context that people feel safe in. So that if we bring up something emotional for them, they feel that they can say it or speak it to release the energy. And so I don't know if that really answers your question, no, but that's kind of how I set it up. Yeah. And like with these kind of three to five days, uh, how do you structure? I mean, 12 hours, that's, that's, that's tough. Like, I mean, I don't know, do you do the Tony Robbins and you just energize everything and you, everyone's pumped. But I mean, I, that, that makes me listening to do 12 hours or three to five days sounds a bit tiring, but so how do you structure it and how do you keep people awake? Yeah, we use accelerated learning. So it's not just me talking. There's a lot of processes, a lot of times where they're doing exercises or writing things down and then sharing with each other, then sharing with the audience. And so I'm, my goal is to also take them on a roller coaster. I, I do joke with people who know who Tony Robbins is, and I'll say, I'm a shorter version of him <laughs> because I am very energetic on stage, but I don't just, not only can you be monotone in your voice, you can be monotone in your energy. So if you're always trying to be rah, 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 that becomes monotone after a while. So I'll have, think of it like being that roller coaster. There'll be people laughing at times, crying at times, happy, pissed off. You know, as a trainer, a lot of people are afraid. Well, what if someone gets upset at me? Or as a speaker, what if someone gets upset at me? And that used to be a huge fear for me. And I realized that if that was my fear, my greatest concern in my head is what I will manifest in my audience. So if all of a sudden I've got the fear that what if someone gets upset, chances are someone's going to jump up in the audience and yell and scream. And so today... I realize that's where some of the greatest breakthroughs can come from. So I don't have it as a fear. I just know that if it ever happens, because I've created that space, it's perfect in the moment. And I've had people go off the rails and instead of panicking, we've turned it into some great lessons. I've had people storm out of the room. That's great because it's, I can't, you know, we were talking before you hit record, the three R's of my name, Robert Raymond Riopel. I also utilize them as, other um, ways the R stand for. The first R stands for real. I keep my trainings real. I, I can't just give fluff and, hey, the, the world is beautiful. I give the good, I give the bad, I give the ugly. I'm going to keep it real with my audience. So if someone disagrees with me, I'm not going to make them wrong. 
I'm going to, because I know that's their truth in the moment. So by having a nice context and a great space help, we can usually process through stuff. If not, and they leave upset, I have to trust. And this is a big one for speakers and trainers, Roy. Trust that in the moment, I'm doing the best I can with what I have. And I'm not going to please everybody. I'm not going to make everybody happy. And guess what? That's absolutely okay. So the second R, my name stands for relevant. I make sure my prep, you talk about pre-prep, is I'm always making sure that the information I'm going to teach and go through is relevant for today. If it worked 15 years ago or five years ago, but isn't relevant for today, I'm not going to teach it. And then I'm going to make sure anything I teach is repeatable. I love systems. Systems, systems, systems. So I want to teach that when people get it, they realize they can repeat it again and again to get the results that they're looking for. And so that's kind of the ways I'm able to do a 12-hour day. And when the audience is there, because we have great breaks as well, we have meal breaks, but the audience doesn't even realize that they've been there that long because they've been so involved, not just me doing the talk. And when somebody doesn't storm out of the room, but kind of directs their, you know, anger towards you, what, what, what's the best way to deal with situations like that? Yeah, part of the techniques that I teach trainers is where to stand on the stage, how to create the space so that you're still connected to the whole audience. I'll let them say their piece. I'll let them get it out. I won't try to stop them first unless they're rambling. But I might, I'll go into coach mode. And as I'm listening, because now I'm very, very present with them, I may say, stop, what's your question? Or stop, why is it that you're really angry? And that sometimes gets people more upset. But I, again, from years of practicing this, I just trust in the moment I'm listening to them for keys, for um, little tips, for little clues on what's really going on deeper. And I'll ask them, I'll say, look, I'm, I'm here to be of service. And if you're willing to play, and what I mean by that is, I won't say, can I coach you? Because that, then if someone's already upset, they're going to be and you know, the words that'll come out of their mouth probably are not good. <laughs> and so I'll say, are you open to playing? And I'll say, let me explain what I mean by that. I'll say, sometimes while I'm on stage, something comes through me. And I've learned to just say it as it comes through. But before I do, I'm going to ask you if you're open to that. If you are, we'll continue. If you're not, we won't. And it, most people say, yeah, fine. Right? And so I'll just go into it. And usually I can kind of tap into what's really going on underneath. And again, I've had people storm out. And I, but what's interesting is because I set a tight context at the beginning of training, more times than not, once that person cools down and they start to think about what really triggered them, they've come back to the room, they've sat through the rest, and we have a conversation later, one-on-one, -on -one, where they have thanked me for you know, being willing to hold the space and allow them to really go through what they need to go through. And I've even had at times, and I don't say this to scare your listeners that maybe you want to be speakers and trainers, but this is why you do this because it's your past and not because of the money. I've had people who were bipolar and off their medication and they went off the rails during a training and I've been able to handle it or, you know, that's where having great staff comes in because sometimes I've had to say, look, stop, you need to leave the room right now. I don't know they're off medication or anything, but if it gets to a stage where it's impacting the room in a negative way, I will actually have them removed from the room. And again, if I have the fear of that, then that's going to put fear into my audience like, oh my goodness, you know, what's going on here? But if I can stand in my confidence because I've, you know, really set a space 
that people feel safe. They feel safe that they know because we do a lot of emotional stuff. And if they're not feeling safe, the training won't be as deep and impactful as they can. And it comes with a lot of practice, Roy. And I'm going to tell you that if, if someone that's watching or listening to this says, I want to be a speaker and trainer, what is the best way to do it? Practice, practice, practice. It's what you're doing when you're not on the stage to be ready on the stage. That's going to make all the difference in the world. And in the thousands of trainers I've trained, that's the biggest difference between people who actually do well and people don't. The people that don't want do well, they sit there and go, oh, okay, I'll be ready. I learned a new technique. <laughs> I'm good. You've got to practice. How do you become number one in anything? You put in the time and the effort. And one of my mentors, my favorite quote, quote of his is this. He says, every master was once a disaster. And that is so true. And I, I'm very willing to share my journey with people that look, when I first started wanting to be a trainer, I actually had people tell me to my face, they looked at me and they went, you want to be a trainer? <laughs> Good luck. But because I was too tenacious to allow their beliefs to hold me back, I put in the work. And even today, with all the trainings I've done, I still put in the practice. I still put in the work because the moment I think I know it all, I'm done. And I hope that makes sense. No, absolutely. Love it. Love it. And I think, you know, people don't realize as well. I mean, even, you know, the person that storms out of the room and you can have a one-on-one -on -one later, that makes it worthwhile when you know you can actually transform someone's life. You can just give that light bulb moment, even though, you know, when they release something, you know, they don't, they're not able to control their emotions in that moment. But later, just to be able to do that to somebody, you know, it's a wonderful experience. And it's one of the many reasons I do what I do, because I love it when someone comes back to me and they'll say, do you remember in this past training last year or months ago, a couple years ago, you said this, well, here's how it transformed my life. And I get either one arm, two arm or whole body goosebumps. And what an amazing feeling. Because when you're a speaker and a trainer and you're doing it to impact lives, you may never know how you impact lives, how you may, you know, what something you said, how it's changed someone's life. And the beautiful part of it is you don't have to know. You don't. If you think you have to know, that's ego coming in. That's ego going, hey, I need to know how great I am because I'm transforming lives. No, you don't. Just trust again that you're doing it. And, and you may hear from students. You may not. And both are perfect. Beautiful. Love it. And I've seen one of your ex. You're a very good dancer. So. <laughs> I do like to have fun. I do like to have fun. <laughs> so I've seen you doing Gangnam style. And I mean, just looking at the audience, because they all have their cameras, but you could see the, like, I mean, I know I'm watching it on a video, but you could feel the energy level there. You know, is that something that you do in the kind of the morgue time when people are after their lunch or is it something at the start of an event? And what other kind of things do you do to get people to get so excited? Because that was, you know, that was unbelievable to watch that, to be honest. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the things I, um, in my trainings, I am a breakthrough expert. And so I've been blessed to put thousands of people across hot firewalks, just like Tony Robbins. Um, 36 feet we do. And I've had thousands of students walk across hot coals. And so we do some kind of breakthrough exercise in every training. And so a few years ago, when I came out of retirement, because I was actually, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of another piece for your listeners that want to be speakers and trainers. I'm, when I train, I'm living my passion. 
but there is such a thing as overliving your passion. And from 2004, when I did my first solo training where the, my mentor wasn't even in the room, I had 1,200 students in Los Angeles, California for a three-day weekend. And I realized that this is definitely working and I'm going to be doing this. All of a sudden, in the next four and a half years, I did over 200 multi-day trainings in North America and then a little bit in Asia as we were just launching. And I overlived my passion. And I got burnt out, Roy. I got burnt out. Plus, because I wasn't taking care of myself on stage, I herniated a disc. I didn't even realize it. For two years, I thought I had a sciatic problem, a pinched nerve in my sciatic. And so I overlived my passion. And I had to take a year off because I was so burnt out. And that one year turned into three and a half years off. And I went from overliving my passion, which is bad, to not living it at all, which is just as bad. Because also now some of the non-supportive um, negative uh, habits came back into my life. And when I realized I had to train again, because it's my gift, when I came out of retirement in 2012, that's right around the time Gangnam Style was, being, was big. And I just marveled at Cy because if you look at Cy the singer, and you look at his journey. Most people go, oh, one hit wonder, blah, 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 blah. But if you really look at his journey, it was a one hit wonder that it took and an overnight success that took him 12 years to get there of following his passion and not listening to people, um, even going against his parents who wanted him to be a doctor or lawyer or something like that. And when he said, no, I want to be an entertainer, they quit paying for his education and made him come home. And, and he kept with his passion, had you know twin daughters and, and just knew that there was something he wanted to do. And so that song was hitting big. And I don't know, you know, if, again, if, if this is a little off topic, but the uh, reason I study biographies and I study people is because you learn so much more by learning their journey instead of just seeing the results. And that song there actually changed the internet. I don't know if you're aware of that, Roy. Did you know that one song changed the internet? Well, on YouTube, it started getting millions and then tens of millions and hundreds of millions of views. And all of a sudden, it gets to, it's the first song ever on YouTube to get over 1 million views. And YouTube started freaking out because they use a very common algorithm that a lot of computer um, programs use, especially for video and stuff like that. And the algorithm is a number like 2.1 billion. It's a long string of numbers. And this algorithm was punch, um, it was utilized in YouTube's all their coding, meaning that if, Gangnam Style got to 2.1 billion views, this number, it would actually crash their whole system because the system doesn't know what to do after that. And so as he was gaining momentum and he hit the 1 billion, 1.1 billion, 1.2 billion, they had to actually change all their coding in YouTube to handle one song, one song. And now today there's songs that have had three, four, five, six billion views because once it was proved it could be done over a billion, things went viral even quicker. And so as I'm coming out of retirement in 2012, Gangnam Style was big and I, I just loved the energy. And so I decided that kind of came on by choice or chance. We had just finished doing a breakthrough exercise and the audience is already excited and you know that they just did something big. And it wasn't the fire walk, it was something a little easier, but still very, very powerful. And I thought, let's reward them. And so I would go to, at the beginning of the event, I would grab my staff and I'd say, for those of you who want to do this with me, we're going to do it as a little fun for the audience and, and to reward them and thank them for playing full on. And so we would, I'd show them a choreography I'd come up with uh, from watching videos on YouTube. I said, we're going to do this dance. And watching the crowd and the audience react 
Like one of the first times I did it, I was in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. I had 4,000 students in the audience. And my, my staff came running through the audience to join me on the stage. Well, when they came running and the music started to start the dance, the audience became a flash mob. And next thing you know, we had over 300 students on the stage. Everybody had their phones out. And in that moment, it was one of the first times I had done it. In that moment, I went, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. So I did it for about two years all over the world. And every time the, the audience just goes wild and crazy and it brings their energy to a whole new level. And it's kind of one of the ways that we help wrap up the weekend. So that's kind of how it began and, and why I loved doing it, but I haven't done it in about six years. <laughs> oh, so. oh, I love it. Lovely story. And when you were traveling around and not because you said, you know, you burnt yourself up, were you, were you traveling with your wife or did, was it something that you were disappearing? Because that's something, you know, if you're, spending so much time away you know sometimes people are bringing them away but like what were you doing and what do you recommend people do because if they're not able to oh. stay in their same country or even i mean america's so big you know if you're traveling to a different state it's still being away from home it is absolutely and so i've been very very blessed that way and in the sense that like as an example my wife and i we met when we were 13 we started dating when we were 16 and we actually got married when we were 19. And this year we celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary. Wow. And my wife, um, I will have no problem telling people I would not be where I am today doing what I do today if it wasn't for my wife. Because if it was left to me, I would be comfortably miserable, miserable in a job. But my wife's not willing to let me play smaller than I am. And sometimes that means, Roy, she has to kick me in the butt because I'm, you know, in my, if I left to my own devices, I get you know, fear, things coming up that get comfortable. And so she's kicked me in the butt. And so when I became a trainer, because one of her passions is to support me, she became one of my main logistics supervisors. And so we were always traveling together. Now she stepped back from that role a couple of years before I took my break because she was getting burnt out. And, and here's what, you know, again, it comes, I, because I understand logistics, here's another reason I appreciate my teams. See, my wife and I, we were traveling and we were together, but we weren't together. Because she was running logistics, she was up an hour or two before me, and she wasn't in bed until an hour after me. I was putting in 12, 13, 14, 15 hour days. She was putting in 16 to 20 hour days. And so when she stepped back, she still traveled with me for the most part, because at that time, we were only on, at home on average two days a month, because we were doing so much training. And when she would stay um, traveling with me, she now became my greatest coach. See, now she had time to sit in the audience and no one knows me like my wife does. And she could tell if something was bothering me. So when we'd have lunch together, she'd be like, what's wrong? I'd be like, nothing. And she'd like, bull, what's going on? And so she'd be able to help me stay on track. So she became my greatest coach. When I came out of retirement, I didn't travel with me as much, but the biggest difference from pre-retirement to post is I learned too much, like my passion, too much, it's not that, I'm not good, not at all, not good. So I wanted a little more balance. And when I came out of retirement, I made the decision that I would do, instead of 40 or 50 trainings a year, I would do a maximum of 20 a year, no matter where in the world I was, so that even with all the traveling, I'd have six months a year at home, six months time off. And I know a lot of your listeners are probably going, wow, I wish I could have six months off. But see, I designed my life that way because I realized what was not working. And I choose not to have to go through two back surgeries again. 
because during that three and a half years off, I ended up going through two back surgeries because I was not taking care of myself. If I'm going to live my passion, I'm going to take care of me at the same time. No, that's, I think that's fantastic advice for people. And uh, like, finally, like you have a book, I know you've, you're giving it out like electronically free, but you might tell us a bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. My first book, which is called Success Left a Clue. And, you know, I titled it that way because I'm known for giving people clues all over the world when I'm on stage. And I've also noticed from my travels and watching successful people, there's a lot of clues to success out there. And it's, it's not just a book to read, though. And here's what I want your listeners to understand, Roy. It's not a book that you sit there, you read it, and you put it on the shelf, and it becomes shelf help. I designed it as a workbook because I cover six steps to be able to really design the life you truly want to have. And step number three is you have to take action. And knowing that people are creatures of habit and most people don't take action, I wrote it where I give action steps all the way through the book. And I'll actually say, do not read any further until you've done this action. And then the next chapter, I begin it with, have you done the last action? If not, stop reading right now. Go and do that action before you continue. And so Success Left the Clue, we published it in 2017. It's now an international best-selling book. And I'm working on my second book. So I decided that why not allow people to get the digital copy of Success Left a Clue as our gift? Because you were so gracious to have me on your podcast. Why not give it to them as a gift? And they just have to simply go to robertrealpel.com to be able to get that copy. Knowing, though, I want them to use it, not just read it. Use it and watch how it can change your life. Because the six steps, to tell you real quick, Step number one is to dream big, not just to dream, but to dream big because as children, anything was possible. But as we started growing up, society started teaching us to be realistic to who do you know, you may not have the right education. You may be weren't born into the right family. So dream smaller. So it's about getting people to dream big again and do vision boards. And I go through a bunch of processes. Step number two, find a mentor or someone to model from. Because unless you're like a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk, I guarantee you whatever you want to do or accomplish, someone's done it before you. So quit trying to figure it out on your own. Find someone who's accomplished what you want to accomplish. Find out how they did it and mentor from them. And mentoring doesn't mean they actually have to one-on-one mentor you. You can mentor by taking a training that they put out or reading a book that they've written. This is why I love biographies. Remember what I said earlier, find out the story that got them to where they are. But the twist on step number two, though, too, as well, is instead of just who can I mentor from or model, also be asking yourself, who can I be a mentor to? And some people, Roy, they go, but Robert, I haven't accomplished anywhere near what you have. How could I be a mentor? I guarantee you, you've gone through something in your life that you can help someone else get through. So it's about giving, not waiting until you're perfect and you're successful before you give. You start helping whoever you can as you can. Step number three, as I said, take action. I love the saying that says one step in the right direction is worth a thousand years of thinking about it. Most people get paralyzed by trying to analyze things. Step number four, you can have people that have great dreams. They have the greatest mentors in the world. They even take action but they still sabotage themselves. And the reason is they miss step number four, which is celebrate your successes. So every day when I wake up, I have my success and gratitude journal. 
and I write down at least five things from the day before that were successes or what am I grateful for? Who am I grateful for? I start my day off that way because when you celebrate, then you're putting focus on things going right in your life. Celebrating your successes. Step number five is have belief in yourself. And this is a tricky one, right? Because it's not about arrogance or being self-centered. As my friend said, a really good friend of mine says, he says it's about being centered in yourself. And for me, it's about having confidence, not arrogance. So believing in yourself, how many people go through self-doubt, low self-esteem? And for those that are not watching this, I'm pointing at myself right now too, because everything I do and teach is what I've needed and what I continue to need in my life. Even with the success I have, I still go through self-doubt. And so working on that belief in myself is a constant thing that I'm doing. And then step number six is really basic that it really messes some people up. And I'm going to preface and say this. Do not let the simplicity of the system of my six steps fool you. Don't let it fool you. That's what will take people out. Is they'll go, this is too simple. And they won't do it. I keep it simple because it works. And I keep it simple so people will do it. See, step number six is simply repeat the first five steps. And the reason that's important is because when you set a dream, you find a mentor or someone to model, you take that action, you celebrate that success, it elevates the belief in yourself, which means you can now set bigger dreams, go for greater mentors and models, take greater actions, have greater celebrations, which then again elevates your belief in yourself. And it becomes a beautiful perpetual cycle. So that's the, what the book goes through. And it's me in a book. It's quirky. I have fun. It's high energy. But it is, it's me in a book format. Love it. And I'm sure the listeners will uh, love it as well because uh, I'm very interested in it. And, uh, you know, just from, I, I mean, your energy that you've come across, all the experience that you've got. Look, Robert, listen, I love this conversation. Thank you very much. So where can people get you? What's the website? Yeah, it is just my name. So Robert Riopel. So R-O-B-E-R-T-R-I-O-P-E-L.com. When they go there, they'll be able to um, download the book and get it so they can start reading it. And again, digital copy of it. And they can also follow me on Facebook. I have my fan page. Just put my name in. I, I cannot, for some reason, accept any more friends. Facebook has maxed me out on 5,000 friends. But I do, I can have people um, follow me on my Facebook fan page where I'm always doing posts. I'm doing videos. Um, as I start traveling again, uh, you know, I do trains whenever I'm around the world, things are popping up. I just record and I put it up on my fan page to help in any way I can. So that's the best way to follow me. Excellent. Listen, Robert, thank you very much for all you've shared today. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate being here. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. As mentioned, we're on BitChute and YouTube at Speaking Podcast. Be sure to give us a five-star review, give it a thumbs up, share with your friends. Until next week, take care. This podcast is sponsored by Kulabula, creators of websites, animation, and digital art. To get a 10% discount, go to kulabula.com and put in the discount code SPEAKING. Mm-hmm.